We're going to finish up the book. On John Reed's life, Comrade is going to read a passage which is very quite emotional and passionate. I thought it was excellent. I'll be the facilitator. I'll stop at a certain point. We'll have questions, and then we'll go back. So I'm going to read a biography of John Reed. It's written by Albert Rice Williams, who was a labor organizer and a journalist. Albert Rice Williams was also a witness to the October Revolution, knew John Reed, and worked with him during the Revolution. So let's jump in. The first American city in which the first workers refused to load military supplies for the Kolchak Army was the city of Portland on the Pacific Coast. This was the city where John Reed was born on October 22, 1887. His father was one of those hardy and open-hearted pioneers whom Jack London portrayed in his stories of the American West. He had a keen mind and despised hypocrisy and deceit. Rather than side with the men of influence and wealth, he opposed them. And when the trusts spread their tentacles to seize the forests and other natural riches of the state, he fought them bitterly. He was persecuted, beaten, and thrown out of jobs, but he never bowed before the enemy. Thus his father left John Reed a splendid legacy, the blood of a fighter, a first-class mind, and a bold and unbending spirit. John's gifts developed early. On leaving high school, he went to Harvard. Harvard is the university of the scions of oil kings, coal barons, and steel magnates. These knew their sons would leave it untarnished by the slightest trace of radicalism after four years of sports, luxury, and quote-unquote, impassive study of impassive science. This indeed is the way tens of thousands of American youngsters at colleges and universities are reared as champions of the existing order, the white guards of reaction. John Reed spent four years in Harvard, where his personal charm and talent earned everybody's affection. He was in daily contact with the offspring of the rich and privileged classes, He heard the bombastic lectures of the devout instructors of sociology. He heard the sermons of the high priests of capitalism, the professors of political economy. And he ended by organizing a socialist club in the heart of that citadel of plutocracy. It was a slap in the face of the eggheads. His elders consoled themselves with the thought that this was purely a boyish craze. Quote, his radicalism will wear thin, they said, as soon as he leaves college and enters the world. Those who wanted to be abreast of contemporary affairs needed only to follow John Reed, for he always hastened a kind of storm bird to wherever big things happened. In Peterson, a textile strike blew up into a revolutionary storm, and John Reed was in its midst. In Colorado, Rockefeller slaves crawled out of their holes and refused to go back despite the clubs and rifles of the armed guard. And John Reed was there too, backing the rebels. In Mexico, The peons raised a mutiny and set out for the Capitopolium under Pancho Villa's leadership. John Reed on horseback was by their side. Danger was never big enough to stop him. Danger was his element. He always managed to enter restricted zones and frontline trenches. In the summer of 1917, Reed hastened to Russia, where he sensed the makings of a great class war in the early revolutionary clashes. He appraised the situation instantly and realized that conquest of power by the proletariat was logical and inevitable, but he was troubled by the delays and postponements. Each morning he woke up with a feeling akin to irritation on seeing that the revolution had not yet begun. At last, Smolny gave the signal and the masses moved in for the revolutionary struggle. Naturally, John Reed went forward with them. He was omnipresent. At the dissolution of pre-parliament, building barricades, at the ovations to Lenin, and Zinoviev when they emerged from hiding, and at the fall of the Winter Palace. But this he described in his book. He collected material wherever he could find it, moving from place to place. 
He collected complete files of the Pravda and his Vestia, all the proclamations, booklets, posters, and announcements. Posters were a special passion. Every time a new poster appeared, he did not hesitate to tear it from the wall if there was no other way of getting it. In those days, posters were printed quickly and in such great numbers that no room was left for them on the fences. The cadet, socialist revolutionary, Menshevik, left socialist revolutionary, and Bolshevik posters were pasted on top of each other in thick layers. One day, Reed tore down a sheaf of 16 posters pasted on top of each other. Running into my room and brandishing the huge slab of paper, he exclaimed, Look, I bagged the whole revolution and counter-revolution in one swoop. Thus, by various means, he gathered a magnificent collection. It was so good that the agents of the U.S. Attorney General took it from him when he arrived in New York Harbor after 1918. However, he managed to regain possession of it and hide it in his New York room, where he typed his 10 days that shook the world, amid the clatter of the subway and the elevated running over his head and beneath his feet. It stands to reason that the American fascist did not want the book to reach the general public. Six different times they broke into the publisher's offices to steal the manuscript. Here is what John Reed wrote on the photograph of himself that he gave his publisher. To my publisher, Horace Livewright, who barely escaped ruin when publishing this book. Pause for questions. Okay. I was just wondering, do you know how, because I know it was talking earlier, or in that reading it was talking about how the teachers and professors at Harvard were very against John Reed's socialist activities. I was wondering, how does that compare to, in your opinion, do you know how that would compare, how that would compare to like teachers and professors nowadays? Because I'm in college now and it feels very, very, all the professors are very anti-socialist and very liberal, but I'm wondering how that would compare to today. I don't really have a whole lot to say about it, except I recently read a Michael Parenti book about American empire, and Michael Parenti was talking about how even the, in his day, even he was a professor in the 70s, 1970s, a lot of professors and professionals in the educational system were actually thrown out of their jobs. And I think that's recovered a little bit in the late 90s. And I know you asked about students, but I don't really have information student-wise, but that's what I have uh, professor-wise. I hear that they were able to operate a little bit more. That may be changing okay. in the future. Yep. Sure, you might have more to add. Yeah, I'll go through it quickly. I was a child of the, I was 18, 1968, I was 18. And my experience that even in conservative college, you were able to find at least one professor that you can work with. But the ones that we consider off the top of my head is Grover Furr. Everybody should know his work on Trotsky and Stalin. Then we have Herbert Apdeka, who's done a couple of works on black reconstruction period, slavery, colonial period. Who else? Parenti. Parenti's another good academia. But most of them is far, far between. And we need to push the people who are actually telling the American public the class angle of our history and what went on in the world. Grover is a good source. I have a bunch of his books and I highly recommend Blood Lies and Khrushchev Lied and Stalin's Still Waiting for the Truth. And don't forget the stuff he wrote on Trotsky, the amalgams. Very good. Mine is only a question, I mean, about the personality of John Reed. Before he went to Russia to witness the October Revolution, I'm under the impression that he must have been a full, an uh, all-round Marxist even when he was in the United States. The way he appreciated the October Revolution is very clear-sighted, and he did not have any misgivings about it. So is it fair to think that he was a Marxist already? I have my understanding, it could be entirely wrong, comrades. My understanding is that he was not where you and I are coming from, definitely not, and that the revolutions in Mexico made him excited 
about social change through revolution. And then when he went to Russia, that convinced him. It was in Russia that I feel that he became a communist. When he came back to the States, he got involved with the Socialist Party, and he pushed the split in the Socialist Party to form the Communist Party. So I think the Russian okay. Revolution was instrumental, comrade. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, That's comrade. Right. Thank Good evening, comrade. Uh, I just wanted to say that um, I watched the film Red. Uh, on, on recommendations, and it was very good and goes over uh, a lot of John Reed's life. And that's why I say that was very good. Thank you, Comrade. Reds, the DVD Reds is excellent. It goes into the whole period very well. Okay, the next part of the reading. As usual, the pundits had aired. John Reed's radicalism was anything but a passing craze. Despite their predictions, contact with outside world had by no means salvaged Reed. It only redoubled his radicalism. How deep and strong it became was evident from the voice of labor, the new communist organ edited by John Reed. It dawned on the American bourgeoisie that a real revolutionary had at last appeared in the country. Now this one word, revolutionary, made them tremble. In the dim past, it is true, America had her revolutionaries, and even now she has highly respected societies like the Daughters of the American Revolution and the Sons of the American Revolution, whereby the reactionary bourgeoisie pays tribute to the revolution of 1776. But those revolutionaries have long since died. While John Reed is a living revolutionary, a revolutionary very much alive, a challenge and the scourge of the bourgeoisie. It cannot be said, therefore, that Russia made a revolutionary of John Reed, but it did make a scientifically thinking and consistent revolutionary of him. That is a great service. It made him pile his desk with the books of Marx, Engels, and Lenin. It gave him an understanding of history and of the course of events. It made him replace his somewhat vague humanitarian views with the unbending and tough facts of economics and it prompted him to become the teacher of the American working class movement and to try and provide it with the scientific foundation that he provided for his own conviction. But he never ceased his revolutionary work. He simply couldn't. The Russian Revolution had won him heart and soul. It made an adept of him and subdued his vacillating anarchistic sentiment to the strict discipline of communism. It sent him as a prophet with his burning torch to the cities of America. It summoned him to Moscow in 1919 to work with the Communist International on fusing the two communist parties of the United States. Equipped with new facts of revolutionary theory, he again set out clandestinely for New York. Betrayed by a sailor and taken off of the ship, he was put in solitary confinement in a Finnish prison. From there, he again returned to Russia, wrote in the Communist International, collected material for a new book, and was a delegate to the Congress of the Eastern Peoples in Baku. He caught typhus and, exhausted by excessive work, succumbed to the disease and died on Sunday, October 17, 1920. There were others like John Reed, who battled the counter-revolutionary front in America and Europe just as gallantly as the Red Army fought the counter-revolution in the USSR. Others fell victim to pogroms, and others still were silenced forever in the prisons. One died in the White Sea during a storm on his way back to France. One died in San Francisco by falling out of a plane from which he was dropping proclamations protesting against the intervention. Fierce, though, the onslaught of imperialism was on the revolution. It could have been fiercer still if it weren't for these fighters. They did their bit, too, in dampening the pressure of the counter-revolution. Not only Russians, Ukrainians, Tatars, and Caucasians 
helped the Russian Revolution. Though to a lesser degree, so did Frenchmen, Germans, Englishmen, and Americans. Among these non-Russian figures, that of John Reed stands out in bold relief because he was an exceptionally gifted man, felled in the prime of his life. When word of his death reached us from Helsingfors and Revel, we were convinced it was just another of the lies daily manufactured by the counter-revolutionary lie factories. But when Louis Bryant confirmed the staggering news, we had to abandon the hope of a denial, painful as this was. Although John Reed died in exile and a five-year prison term hung over him at the time, even the bourgeois press paid tribute to him as an artist and man. The bourgeoisie breathed with relief. John Reed, who knew so well how to expose their mendacity, who flayed them so mercilessly with his pen, was no more. The radical world in America suffered an irreparable loss. Comrades living outside America can hardly measure the sense of loss created by his death. Russians think it natural. They take it for granted that a man dies for his convictions. There is no room for that sentiment here. In Soviet Russia, thousands and tens of thousands have died for socialism. But in America, there has been relatively little sacrifice. If you like, John Reed was the first such martyr of the communist revolution, the forerunner of thousands more. And the sudden end of his meteor-like life in faraway blockaded Russia came as a terrible blow to the American communists. There is just the one solace to his old friends and comrades that John Reed has been laid to rest in the only place in the world he liked best, the square by the Kremlin wall. A monument has been erected over his grave there, consistent with his character, an unhewed slab of granite inscribed, John Reed, Delegate to the Third International, 1920. That's it. Thank you, comrade, for that excellent reading. As you were reading, I thought about the idea that uh, we don't need martyrs. You must have heard that in our movement. And it's true. We need people fighting every day on the front line. But there are times in our history that whether we want to have martyrs or not, they do arise. And comrade Reed was one of those people. He makes most of us proud to understand that we come from the same soil as he comes from. So many of the people that represent this country are such negative individuals, such evil entities, that somebody like Reed makes us lift our head up and say, yes, we are, there are communists, there are Bolsheviks in America, and we're here to get rid of the exploitation of the working class. So I just wanted to read one sentence, then open up to questions. On the book... 10 Days That Shook the World. He has this one sentence where he talks about the singing of the international, and it's an important thing. So many in the left, without mentioning names, are so anti-international. They feel it's from another time. It doesn't represent us. So I'm just going to read this one thing over here. They had a proclamation, and it was exactly 1035 when Kamenev asked everyone in favor of the proclamation to hold up their cards. These were their cards to vote. One delegate dared to raise his hand against, but the sudden sharp outburst around him brought it swiftly down. It was unanimous. Suddenly, by common impulse, and this is John rewriting, we found ourselves on our feet, bumbling together into the smooth lifting unison of our song, The International. A grizzled old soldier was sobbing like a child. Alexandra Kolontai rapidly winked the tears back. The immense sound rolled through the hall, burst windows and doors, and seared into the quiet sky. The war is ended. The war is ended, said a young workman near me. His face was shining. And when it was over, as we stood there, in a kind of awkward hush. Someone in the back of the room shouted, 
Comrades, let us remember those who have died for our liberty. So we began to sing the funeral march, that slow, melancholy, and yet triumphant chant, so Russian <clears throat> and so moving. The Internationale is an alien air after all, coming from France. The funeral march seemed the very soul of the dark masses whose delegates sat in this hall, building from their obscure visions a new Russia and perhaps much more. And I want to end it with that because, it, comrades, it was much, much more. It gave birth to the communist movement throughout the planet, and that includes us here. Yeah, I just want to say there's actually, if anyone's familiar with Billy Bragg, he wrote a more update version of International. If anyone wants to check it out, that's all I wanted to say. Thank you, Cameron. So I was just wondering, it was said in the biography that John Reed, he was attempting to unite the two communist parties in the U.S. at the time. What were those parties and what were the differences? Okay, very quickly, I know the answer to that one. One was based on the immigrants, the people that came here from Eastern Europe and Europe. They were already communists when they came here. They left their countries because the revolution had failed, their first attempt. And that was called, I believe, could be wrong on this, the Communist Labor Party. That's correct. That's correct. Ah, I give myself a star in that. Okay, and the other group was built on the Native American working class, people who spoke English, who lived here, who were born here for generations. And that was the one that John Reed led. And I think that was called the Communist Party of America. Is that correct? He definitely was part of the yeah. Communist Labor Party right. of America. Okay. And he was responsible for going to Moscow. And the movie Reds goes into this. He goes to Moscow for his party. The representative from the immigrant party in this country, I think his name started with Louis Farina, for Louis Farina. And they both stood in front of Zinoviev in the movie to represent their party. And the Comintern said, we're only going to allow one party. You have to join forces. You got to join forces and then come back and give us a representative to the Comintern. And that was his role. Thank you. I really enjoyed when we were reading the biography where they're talking about how this revolution kind of made John Reed into the kind of beliefs that he had. Right. That inspired him to go read more, dig into his five Marxist books, study the history, learn from the people that were there. I just find that's a very apt quote for us to think about because we're still inspired by it and we're inspired by all the things that are happening. This week, Bolivia actually voted socialism back in there. Hopefully it'll last there, but there's still many movements that are inspiring us now, and we had the lessons from the past to keep us going. So that's all I had to say. All right. Thank you, Cameron. Okay. I just wanted to point out to everybody tonight that John Reed, he died in 1920, and that was only three years after the revolution, and that was before the Civil War in Russia ended. So I think what we have to understand in our material circumstances and collectively, we have to realize that when the revolution happened, one of the crying calls of the Bolshevik Party was pea, land, and bread, because people were sick and tired of fighting in World War I, and were sick and tired of sending their mothers, sons, daughters out to this war to fight for the Tsar, essentially. So my point is that after 1917 and the revolution happens, all these people that are so sick of war and so sick of tired and going off to fight, if they didn't think the revolution was worth defending, that civil war wouldn't have happened. So my point is that what John Reed experienced and what the people in the early stages of the Bolshevik Revolution experienced, they saw it as such a turning point that even though they had endured the tragic hardships of World War I and everything negative that that entailed, they were still willing 
to make those material sacrifices to advance the cause of what they saw as a brighter future, that being the October Revolution. So I just want to give that perspective to people, that even these people that were so sick of war were determined to fight for something that they understood as a step in human progress. So that's why I wanted to add. Yes, I just wanted to piggyback on something mentioned about the Russian people. The Russian people are amazing. I know a lot of people laugh about war and peace being so long, but Tolstoy's depiction of the Russian people, because I read that and saw one thing, obviously he admired them immensely, and it shows in his writing, is that I am able to see why, even though they were tired of war and lost millions of lives, they could turn around for their country and know what's best and say, yeah, we've got to make a change. I think we really underrate the soul of the Russian people. I consider them quite unique based on what I have read, especially by the Russians themselves. Is it possible to ask you a question about what you mentioned earlier about people and, you know, the Russian people? And the... I would like to hear your perspective on almost the inverse. What would motivate the other side to continue to fight and have the same type of, it seems at least at first, the same type of motivation to win the civil war, if that, if that makes sense? I can go over it sort of briefly right now. And that is that the Kerensky government, or that is, you know, to say the provisional government that was in power from February to October was very much in the mold of the old czarist regime. They very much had connections and ties with the traditional political infrastructure that had been set up in Russia before the revolution. So essentially, when you have the February revolution in 1917, you have this division of power on a federal basis where you have the Soviet that is directly interacting with and responsive to the needs of the people. And you have what is essentially the provisional government, which is sort of a bureaucratic extension of the Duma, which was this the quote-unquote democratic body that governed Tsarist Russia. So in short, it's because the people in the Kerensky government were very closely linked with the old czarist elements that has just been pervasive in the society. It makes me think of the Marx quote where the society is stamped with the birthmarks that came before it. And so even though you have this revolution in February in 1917, that doesn't mean that all of a sudden you have the entire governmental apparatus is composed of people who are actually building towards that revolution. It's a much more mixed picture than that. If anyone has have a better answer than I do, that'd be much appreciated. Yeah, that's my understanding. That's what it was. You're correct, comrade. Everything you said was correct. And if you had any recommended reading material on tonight's topic, as far as literature on the topic tonight, obviously 10 Days That Shook the World is the book that we're going over. But on the New Outlook publisher's website, I believe, there is a, a very short pamphlet, um, maybe like 60 or 70 pages, that is on the October Revolution. So that's a very brief synopsis of it. It's called The Russian Revolution by Marcel Liebman. It's, very mu it's much more historical and much more data-based as opposed to 10 Days That Shook the World, which is much more of a narrative from the perspective of John Reed. So those are the recommendations I can think of off the top of my head. Pretty sure I saw 10 Days That Shook the World on New Outlook. 10 Days That Shook the World is on New Outlook Publishers. All right. Reading over 10 Days That Shook the World is definitely a inspirational piece. It definitely kind of gets you, I guess for, for lack of a better way of putting it, riled up. That aside, to echo, yeah, it's definitely there. I was curious... What happens to the communist parties in the United States after John Reed's death, if anybody could answer that? Uh, yeah, I could answer this. We went through our own tribulations. Remember, let's go through the chronicle. 
period. 1919, the party was born as a unified formation. I think Reed died in 1918, is that correct? Um, Reed died in 1920. Oh, 1920. So he was around. And so in 1919, we had the first Congress. Now, remember, in 1922, the Soviet Union was set up. Before that time, there was no Soviet Union. And then after that, I think it was that period of time that the Comintern came together. The Comintern was the most important thing we had on this planet, in my opinion. It was the first time that the whole working class, the militant section of the working class, the Bolshevik section, could come together and strategize and talk about what we're going to do as the workers of the world. What are we going to do in each country? What is the situation in each country? So that, to me, was our gift, the common turn. And I think when the common turn, in my opinion, our problems started in 1944 when there was no more common turn. That's when our problems started. Now, let's go back to this party in this country. 1928, we had the first split. The split was Jay Lovestone, the general secretary, and a few people around him who followed Trotsky at the time. They did not, and I do call him comrade. People may not like that word for him, but he was a comrade at the time. People can can be comrades at one point in their life and then later on become traitors. It's common in our movement, by the way, as it is in all movements. But at that time, they followed him. The rest of the communist movement followed Comrade Stalin. We felt he was correct. And that was the first split in this country. And they formed the Socialist Workers' Party. And Jay Lovestone, within a year, went over to the American government. I don't know if you know this. He went actually over to the American government, to the enemy. And he worked with them and helped work in the AFL at the time, American Federation of Labor. It was Jay Lovestone. The head of the general secretary, remember this, the general secretary, the head of the party, went over to the enemy. So be careful, comrades. Our history is full of that. If you think it ended there, it ended with Gorbachev. That was the final person who was a leader. I have never seen it come from the rank and file, from the people on the telephone tonight. It's always seemed to come from the higher echelons. So that's the history of the party. Brian, wouldn't you say this specific party is formed out of the state of what the CPUSA is today. Exactly. Right. Yeah, that's we had to form. We had no choice. I would have been very happy in the old party with the old leadership. They weren't perfect, but at least they were Marxist-Leninist, and they were on a they were on a pro-Soviet position. With Lovestone's faction breaking away, was it Forrester who remained with Stalin? Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. You're correct. Okay, that's all I had. Thank you. I'm definitely going to go out and buy it and read it, though. It seems like a very interesting work and very inspirational just based on that biography that we got in tonight's session. I guess I just had one comment about what's been talked about a little bit regarding the Russian Civil War in that period. I only know a little bit about it so far, but that sort of post-World War One period after the new state, the new Soviet Union in Russia was still fighting. It was a very interesting period. And from what I know, it also involves the sort of forces of international reaction were part of the opposition as well. That, that was part of the reason why they had to keep fighting um, was there was forces, I believe, in Poland and other places in Eastern Europe that were allied with the white government that were sort of keeping it going, uh, if, if I'm correct on that. Yeah, I want to add to that. In 1919, comrades, everyone, there was an invasion of uh, revolutionary Russia by, led by the United States and other countries. 
It was an expeditionary force, it was called. Fourteen countries joined together. They landed in Archangel Mamans, which is in northern Russia. And they, they tried to kill the Bolshevik baby in its cradle, and they failed. That's all. Thank you. Just to piggyback on that, I actually have sort of a, a personal family connection with that history. My great-great-grandfather was an Italian immigrant. As part of, I guess, pushing his citizenship through, he was signed on to that expeditionary force to go oh. to the Army. So That's interesting, Comrade. You should tell us more about it at a future class. Thank you. Question for Comrade about the Second Congress of the Comintern in 1920, when there was a showdown between John Reed and Lenin on Lenin's draft thesis of the national colonial question. And John Reed was in opposition to Lenin's formulations on that thesis and was uh, in opposition to the national colonial question formulated by Lenin. So I just have a question for that to Comrade. Okay, my understanding, I'll answer you, Comrade. My understanding is that you had a neophyte, a new neophyte, very passionate, dealing with someone like Lenin, who had spent, was much, who was older, and spent many years in the revolutionary movement. And it was Whatever the pros or cons of the issue, I just want you to look at it in that perspective because we're going to always have that. We've had that when I was young and new, and I see it in our party now. So that's all I could say about the difference. I don't believe it was, you know, one thing about Lenin, people were allowed to speak their mind, even if they differed from Comrade Lenin. There was nobody being hauled off to prison or eliminated. So that's all I can say about it. If anybody knows anything more, they're to say something now. I think uh, with John Reed's relative experience to colonialism and self-determination of nations, subjugated nations by especially British colonialism for almost 100 years, including the USA, I think he could have been naive to understand this from an uh, intellectual and also pragmatic point of view, meaning that, I mean, to come up with Lenin's mature thesis about uh, the emancipation of nations as the basis for self-determination and voluntary association of nations. He could have been uh, naive. I just wanted to say thank you for the class, and I just think these are really, really important to uplift, you know, a comrade's soul during these times, um, to hear these kind of stories about people like John Reed. And then they're very helpful for I mean, I work and I have a kid, so it's really nice to be able to have people read aloud and ask the questions. So I thank you guys a lot. Thank you so much, comrades. I'm going to pass it off to wrap up the class. Comrades, we're developing, we're actually building a communist movement here in this country that is not given over to pragmatism, that is not given over to opportunism or ultra-leftism. I just think that I want to mention that. So I want to thank everybody to participate. Thank you all for attending. Good night.